Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Not So Grateful Dead podcast. It is your host, Grayson Decker, back at it again with another Wednesday episode. Today, we are going to be covering part two to Sunday's case. So if you did not listen to Sunday's case, I highly recommend that. There's a lot of useful information in that episode that you will need to understand today's episode. So go back and listen, and then you can come back and enjoy this episode. But I'm just going to jump right into part two. And yeah, let's get into it. All right, everyone. So we left off on Sunday with talking about Vicki Hutchinson's statement leading to the long and intimidating interview with Jesse Miss Kelly. In this interview, the investigators basically coerced their confession out of Jesse that they eventually taped, and this led to the almost immediate arrest of all three of the teen boys, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly. They were all charged with three counts of capital murder. After the arrest, Jesse Miss Kelly immediately stated that he did not commit this heinous crime, but that he had been confused by the behavior of the police. He was simply trying to cooperate with the authorities without even realizing the repercussions of his statements to them. And like we talked about on Sunday, Jesse had a fairly low IQ, which obviously no bad statements about that, but he clearly was not able to comprehend the severity of the situation that he was in. And it does not help when scary men are intimidating you. Not to mention just the sheer fact that he is a teenager and there are law enforcement, so it would just be very stressful and scary. This statement, however, obviously did not matter to them and all three teens remained in custody. Authorities, though, needed a better case for themselves because at this point, all they have is a confession that they forced out of Jesse Miss Kelly. This is when authorities decide to go back to Aaron, who is the son of Vicki Hutchinson, the one who gave the statement about Damien Eccles taking her and Jesse Miss Kelly to a satanic orgy, essentially. Aaron had a very interesting story to tell. Aaron states that himself, Chris Byers, Stevie Branch, and Mike Moore were all together that evening of May 5th, 1993, and that he actually witnessed these murders. Aaron then goes on to say that the night before the boys went missing, so May 4th, 1993, Jesse Miss Kelly called Aaron and asked him if he and his three friends wanted to quote-unquote do something in the woods the next day, May 5th, 1993. Apparently, Aaron says okay to this, and they all meet up in Robin Hood Hills. Once they're all there, supposedly Damien, Jason, and Jesse slapped Stevie, Mike, and Chris. Aaron then at this point tries to run away, but Jesse catches him, and then he gets away again. Jesse catches him one more time, and this is when Jesse ties Aaron up. Aaron states that he remained tied up for just about 40 seconds before he got himself loose. When Gary Gitchell, the chief inspector, asked him what he was tied up with, Aaron states that it was with some rope, and as we know, the boys were tied up with shoelaces, so that's a little weird. 
Aaron also states that they couldn't hurt me because I kicked every one of them with a foot. Aaron then apparently watches his friends as they get stabbed and stripped down, and then he says that they cut off the private part. And he finally states that he watched from a distance as his friends were, trigger warning, raped by Damien, Jason, and Jesse. This whole statement to me honestly just seems kind of out there, not to just automatically shut it down, but it's just very inconsistent. All the sightings from that evening are just three boys, and sometimes two, but never four. And with the rope, as we know, Stevie, Mike, and Chris were tied up with their shoelaces. And also, in the original interview with Vicky, where Aaron was there, where like she was getting polygraphed, like we talked about on Sunday, he was asked to look at a photo lineup, and he could not pick Damien, Jason, or Jesse out of this photo lineup but he's so sure that it's them. It just seems a little too good to be true, and I just don't know how to feel about it, but I digress. This was everything that Gary Getchell wanted and needed to strengthen his case. He just basically needed another eyewitness to the crime, which he got through this statement. On August 4th, 1993, the pretrial hearing was held in Marion, Arkansas, and Judge David Burnett was deciding where the trials would be heading for Damien, Jason, and Jesse. Judge Burnett ruled that Jesse Miss Kelly should be tried separately from Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin. And not only this, but Judge Burnett also ruled that the state prosecution could present Jesse's confession tape in court to the jury. The defense tries to argue that not only was this confession obtained under coercive circumstances, but officers even refused to just listen to what Jesse had to say. Authorities even went as far as drawing Jesse a Venn diagram and telling him that he had the choice to either be in the circle with the killers or to be in the circle with the police. They even play the recording of Aaron to Jesse, where Aaron states that nobody knows what happened but me, which as one can imagine would be really stressful. They put him under such shitty conditions and it really pisses me off. In another pretrial that was held later, Judge Burnett made another ruling that all three teens, Damian Eccles, who was 18, Jason Baldwin, who was 16, and Jesse Miss Kelly, who was 17, would all be tried as adults. Let's rewind a little bit before we get too far into the trials and talk about some things that investigators basically ignored and did not follow up on. So first, we're going to talk about John Mark Byers, who is Chris Byers' adoptive father. During the whole process of gathering up evidence in this case, investigators came across a knife that was previously owned by John Mark Byers. On this knife, authorities found blood, and when it was tested, it had both John Mark Byers' blood and Chris Byers' blood on it. Not only this, but John Mark actually gave this knife away shortly after the murders had occurred, which always seems a little suspicious. Gotta pay attention to that. But after all of that, you know what the West Memphis police did about it? Nothing. 
I never followed up on this lead. And like I said in part one, I feel as though it's essential to look at the inner circle first because shit like this happens and seems off. So you should pay attention to it. So now we're going to go back to the night of May 5th, 1993 for this next lead. This is the night that the boys went missing. Calls began coming in to the West Memphis Police Department about an African-American male who is in the Bojangles restaurant. Bojangles is just about one mile away from the Robin Hood Hills where the crime had occurred. The workers making this call are telling authorities that this man had come into the restaurant and he seemed mentally disoriented and that he had run inside of the women's restroom. He was covered in blood and mud and while he was actually in the bathroom, he rubbed up against the walls, leaving bloody streaks behind. Officer Regina Meeks took a statement from a worker at Bojangles, and guess where she took this statement from? The drive through window. And not only this, she did not step foot in the bathroom where all of this blood was left behind. Ugh. It wasn't until the day after the bodies had been discovered and the Bojangles manager, Marty King, reaches out to authorities and tells them that he truly thinks that what happened in his restaurant could have been connected to the crimes, does law enforcement go out and gather samples of this blood from the bathroom. Marty King described this man as wearing a blue cast with white Velcro on his arm, and he also gives investigators a pair of sunglasses that he believed belonged to the man. Investigators took blood scrapings from the floor and wall tiles in the bathroom, and later it comes out that Detective Brian Ridge admitted to losing these samples of blood. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Come on. You lost samples of blood. Ah, once again, just so infuriating. But West Memphis police never actually followed up on this lead either, so I guess it doesn't really matter to them that they lost these blood samples. The last lead we're going to talk about is Chris Morgan and Brian Holland. They were briefly looked into in the very beginning of this case, and both of these teens had previous drug offense histories. And shortly after the bodies were discovered, just four days to be exact, they both abruptly packed up and left for Oceanside, California, which that always is very suspicious to me. Why are you just getting up and leaving the town right after all of these bodies are found? Do you have something to do with it? It's important. Chris Morgan was known to have possibly been connected because he drove an ice cream truck around the same neighborhood that the boys had lived in. On May 17, 1993, Chris Morgan and Brian Holland were arrested in Oceanside, California. The two of them are then polygraph tested, and they're asked about their involvement in the murders of the three boys in West Memphis, and both of them showed signs of deception, and Chris Morgan specifically talked about how he had a long history of both drugs and alcohol, and because of this, he sometimes blacks out and has memory lapses. He even states that he, quote, might have killed someone. So, that's pretty crazy. Blood and urine samples were obtained from both Chris and Brian, and these were sent off to the West Memphis Police Department for testing. But, 
There is no evidence at all that the police further looked into these men after the arrests were made in California, which once again, just absolutely infuriating. January 18, 1994, Jesse Ms. Kelly's jury is selected. There is a mixture of seven women and five men. John Fogelman, who was the state prosecutor in this trial, gives the state's opening statement. He states that the jury may see differences and inconsistencies in Jesse's confession and that this is because Jesse was trying to lessen his own involvement. He goes on to say that Jesse was an accomplice to Damien and Jason and that the proof would show that. January 26, 1993, Jesse Miss Kelly's trial begins. Dan Stidham, who was the defense attorney that represented Jesse, stated that Jesse was only being tried because of a tremendous pressure for arrests to be made in this case. And not only that, but the tunnel vision that law enforcement had on Damien Eccles from the beginning. Stidham also says that investigators broke his will and scared him beyond all measure. This is the reason for Jesse's confession. Jesse Miss Kelly refused to repeat the statements that were coerced out of him. And this was like while he was on stand, he like said, no, I'm not saying that again. And he also refused to testify against Damien and Jason. After the initial opening statements of both of the sides in this trial, the prosecution calls up their first witnesses, and these are the mothers of Stevie Branch, Mike Moore, and Chris Byers. They all give their statements describing to the court the last time that they had seen their sons on the fateful evening of May 5th, 1993. When Dan Stedham carried out his cross-examination of the mothers, he had to stop himself from bringing up the suspicion towards John Mark Byers. And this was because the jury obviously would be sympathizing with the parents of the boys in that situation, and he didn't want to ruin their feelings about him from the get-go. After this, John Fogelman told jurors a terribly graphic story of the murders. And then Detective Brian Ridge testifies about how he searched the Robin Hood Hills for the three young boys, and when they eventually discovered the deceased bodies of the boys. These statements were told all while the jury was looking at the wall at the front of the courtroom that was lined with the young boys' bikes. So just a very emotional situation for the jury to be in, listening to the horrendous story of these boys' murders while also looking at the bikes that they were last known to be riding on. It's just very sad. John Fogelman also showed over 30 photos of the crime scene and the boys' deceased bodies, nude, bound, and completely mutilated. Not only these photos, but once Dr. Frank Peretti, who carried out the autopsies of the young boys, told his findings to the court. He included photos of the autopsies where the bodies were just on the autopsy table. So as one can imagine, it was probably just very gruesome and heart-wrenching to see and hear these stories. When Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell takes a stand, he has a very interesting story to tell. He is describing the circumstances surrounding Jesse Miss Kelly's confession. 
Gary Gitchell states that Jesse stayed very relaxed during his entire interrogation, which I feel like as we know, that is not true. The audio tape of Jesse's confession is then played for the jury, and it was 34 minutes long. After the audio tape, Dan Stidham cross-examines Gary Gitchell and brings up the many inconsistencies with Jesse's confession, like how he believed the killings took place around noon and that the boys had been tied up with rope instead of shoelaces. All Gary Gitchell had to say about these inconsistencies was, quote, Jesse simply got confused, that's all, which is absolutely infuriating. I don't know about you, but this man pisses me the fuck off. He is just, ah, that's all I can say. Ah, he makes me mad. A lot of people would then expect Aaron, the son of Vicki Hutchinson, to go next on Stan because like we talked about earlier, he is the only other eyewitness in this case. But Fogelman maybe knew that this would be a little too risky because it is kind of a crazy story and Aaron could be cross-examined, which could lead to him saying something inconsistent to the statement that he gave Gary Gitchell. And because of this, they called Vicki Hutchinson to the stand. Vicki told the jury that she loved the boys and she really wanted to see their killers get caught. So this is why she felt really compelled to play detective in this case. She tells her story of the S-bot kind of sex orgy kind of thing, satanic ritual thing that she discussed with them. And it is ruled by Judge Burnett that her statements of their faces being painted black and it being referred to an orgy might be too prejudicial. So he says no to that. So Vicky's story was essentially just about 12 to 15 young individuals at a gathering of sorts. And when she was cross-examined and asked if her playing detective was just about gaining the $35,000 reward, she denied this being the reason why she helped in this case, which, mm, I don't know about that. So then John Fogelman calls up his final witness to the stand. And I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not sure if this is correct pronunciation, but I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Lisa Sakavichis from the State Crime Lab. She is there to provide an expert testimony about a green polyester fiber that was found on Mike Moore's Cub Scout cap. It was microscopically similar to some fibers that were recovered from a t-shirt in Damien Eccles' home. She also goes on to testify about a red rayon fiber that was found near the bodies, and this was also microscopically similar, but this was found to be similar to a bathrobe that was found in Jesse Miss Kelly's home. Sakavichus goes on to say that these results in no way imply that either items of clothing, the shirt, or the bathrobe were worn by or were at the scene where the murders occurred but she says it is possible that this could have occurred via a secondary transfer, aka these fibers were on another item of clothing or the perpetrator had them like on their person in general and they fell off at the crime scene. You leave fibers and hairs basically everywhere you go all day, every day. So it's quite possible that that could have happened, but it's not officially determined. When Sikavichis was cross-examined by Dan Stedham, she states that many fibers are microscopically similar to each other, 
and that the discoveries of these proved nothing at all. So as we can see, John Fogelman really did not have a good case for himself here. It truly, to me, kind of seems like they quite literally have nothing except a coerced confession from Jesse Miscali. But John Fogelman presented one other piece of evidence to the jury before he rested their case. And this was a book that was recovered from Damien Eccles' home. It was titled Never on a Broomstick. And this book was, in short, about witchcraft and its evolution. It involves practices all the way from prehistoric times to modern times. I just can't understand this argument because he believed in witchy things, that he is basically just capable of murdering children. But I digress. To me, it just seems kind of stupid, but whatever. At this point in the trial, Dan Stidham struggled with the idea of allowing Jesse Miss Kelly to testify on stand. This was because of the fact that Jesse did have a lower IQ. He was worried specifically that John Fogelman would use the same scare tactics against him that Gary Gitchell had and that he would end up just kind of getting anxious and repeating what is said to him back to the prosecutor. So Dan Stidham just decided to basically poke holes in the prosecution's story and raise reasonable doubt. Stidham used Warren Holmes as a big key piece of his argument against John Fogelman. Warren Holmes was a pretty well-known detective and polygraph examiner, and he worked on several popular cases previous to this one, including the assassinations of JFK and Martin Luther King, and also he worked on the Watergate case. So pretty, pretty high, high up their cases. Pretty crazy. Warren Holmes reviewed the polygraph results of Jesse Miss Kelly and explained that Jesse answered all of the questions but one truthfully. And the one question that he actually lied about was when he was asked about his prior drug usage. Holmes also believed that Officer Durham, the one who recorded the polygraph test results, lied to Jesse as a way to threaten and scare him into a confession. But Judge Burnett would not actually allow Warren Holmes to present the results in a way that would suggest either innocence or guilt. So Warren Holmes initially actually only testified in front of Judge Burnett, not in front of the jury. Warren Holmes explains to Judge Burnett the warning signs that contribute to a false confession. And this includes like phrases that are like, you don't already know, and basically like telling them that what they're saying does not match the known facts of the case. Telling the story of the crime in a narrative form is the other one. Holmes goes on to say that in Jesse's case and confession, all of these warning signs occurred. He states that just a simple statement of telling someone they failed their polygraph test can lead to a false confession. After this testimony to Judge Burnett, Holmes is allowed to testify to the jury about some specific things. One of these things being that Jesse obviously knows the difference between shoelaces and rope, but not everything that he told Judge Burnett, which was very useful information. I just, I don't get not allowing them to speak on that. It's just kind of suspicious in my opinion whatever. There was another witness for the defense in this trial, Dr. Richard Offshe. He was a social psychologist. Stidham used Offshe to explain what coercion is and how it could have led to a false confession. 
There's a lot of back and forth between both sides during this testimony and cross-examination, but in short, Dr. Offshe explains suggestive questions and the meaning of coercion. In the closing arguments, Fogelman closes his side of things by basically saying that no coercion happened and only the truth has been spoken. Quote, there is absolutely not one iota of evidence that Ridge and Gitchell have told anything other than the truth in this courtroom. There is no evidence of any form of coercion. What is the defense? Are they saying that the defendant was brainwashed? Is that what they're saying? Stidham then closes his side of things by speaking on the fact that they're convicting an innocent man. Quote, killing one human being by another is only exceeded by the state killing an innocent man. January 27, 1994, Jesse is given his verdict, guilty of first-degree murder on all three counts. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and when Jesse was asked if he had anything to say before his sentencing was in, like, put in place by Judge Burnett, Jesse just said no. It just honestly makes me very sad because I don't personally think that he did it, but I digress. Just two weeks following the guilty verdict of Jesse Miss Kelly in Jonesboro, Arkansas, jury selection began for the trial of Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin. Just one day before the trial began, Dan Sidham explains that Jesse Miss Kelly will not be testifying against Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin. John Fogelman begins his argument for the state's side of things by telling the jury that the state would prove through scientific evidence and statements that Jason Baldwin and Damian Eccles caused the deaths of Stevie Branch, Mike Moore, and Chris Byers. Paul Ford, the defense attorney that was representing Jason Baldwin during the trials, explains to the jury that Jason Baldwin was just 16 years old at the time of his arrest, and he is in no way at all a troublemaker. Jason Baldwin frequently took care of his two younger brothers, putting them to bed some nights, waking them up, and getting them fed before sending them off to school. Just an all-around good kid. And like we talked about in the last episode, Jason seemed to be a very motivated teen, especially in his academics. He was the only one out of all three being tried that hadn't dropped out of high school. Paul Ford ends his opening argument with talking about how authorities twisted and manipulated the evidence to fit their versions of things. Scott Davidson, the defense attorney that was representing Damian Eccles, used his opening statement as an opportunity to try and clear Damian's reputation and his character. Scott Davidson explains to the jury that Damian, quote, is not the all-American boy he is kind of weird, and he's maybe not the same as you and I might be, but I think you'll see that there is simply no evidence that he murders, murdered these three kids. The prosecution began the trial virtually the same way that they began in Jesse Miss Kelly's trial. The parents of the boys explained the last time that they saw their sons, and then the detectives described the crime scene and the discovery of the bodies. The next person to go up on stand was Detective Brian Ridge, and he first began by talking about Damien's interrogation, and he states that Damien apparently said, all people hold demonic forces inside of them. 
And then Detective Ridge also states that Damien spoke about the mystical significance of water and how three is a sacred number in the Wicca religion. He talks about how Damien enjoys books written by Stephen King and how he kind of found that strange, which, sorry, it's not your cup of tea. Doesn't mean it's fucking like a classifier for murder, sir. But I digress. <sighs> Whatever. <laughs> He also goes on to talk about how Damien wears black clothing as well, which is just some real fucking stupid shit if you ask me. Just be sure to be careful, guys. Don't wear black and read Stephen King or you will be seen as a murderer, okay? So then the next person to testify is Deanna Holcomb and... This is John Fogelman going as far as bringing up an ex-girlfriend of Damien to the stand, and she is basically there to simply describe how Damien dressed in all black and how he owned some knives and things like that, and sometimes carried those knives in a trench coat. So, to me, just not very important, but whatever, 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 John Fogelman. At this time, John Fogelman asked Judge Burnett to, quote, take judicial notice that there was a full moon on the evening of May 5th, 1993. And Judge Burnett found this appropriate. Are you kidding me? We're going to take into consideration that there was a full moon in this trial. Because that's important, right? <sighs> Seriously, just so frustrating. I can't. The next person to testify is an expert witness, and this is Dr. Dale Griffiths, and he was a cult expert from Ohio, and he testified that the number three was, quote, one of the most powerful numbers in the practice of satanic belief. So that's where we're going with this guy. When Dr. Griffiths was cross-examined during his testimony, he was asked if the number three had any sort of significance in Christianity. And Dr. Griffiths replied with, I cannot make that statement. Which this seems a little hypocritical to me because as we all know, maybe not all of us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost make up the Holy Trinity. So to me, it does seem like the number three is pretty significant in Christianity, but I digress. Dr. Griffiths also goes on to say that the murderers of the three boys, quote, were using the trappings of occultism during this event. He talks about the time of the moon phase and its significance along with the removal of blood and trappings. So just some very off-of-the-wall shit, if you ask me. Then Dr. Frank Peretti is next up to testify, and when he was on stand, he was handed a knife, and this knife was found in the lake that was located behind the trailer park that Damien and Jason lived in. Dr. Peretti states that the wounds that were found on Chris Byer's body were consistent with the serrated part of the knife. But when he was cross-examined, he states that it is equally as plausible that Chris Byer's injuries were consistent with John Mark Byer's serrated knife that we discussed earlier. So, seems a little suspicious, but whatever. Dr. Peretti also went on further into detail and depth about the boy's injuries and autopsy results. 
So the knife wounds that were found in Chris Byers' genital area were created antemortem, which basically means that these injuries occurred when Chris was still alive, which is so heartbreaking to hear. Very sad. Peretti continues on by saying that both Stevie Branch and Mike Moore suffered from massive blows to the head and Mike Moore was recovered with water in his lungs, and this means that Mike had been like still breathing when he was put into the water. During Dr. Peretti's cross-examination, Peretti states that Jesse's confession was pretty inconsistent when compared to his medical findings. The next witness to testify was Michael Carson, and Michael Carson was a 16-year-old who shared jail time with Jason Baldwin. Carson states that Jason Baldwin admitted to him that he had dismembered the kids and trigger warning just because this is very graphic and quite upsetting. I don't even really want to say it, but I digress. So he had said that he sucked the blood from the penis and scrotum and then that he put the balls in his mouth. So very graphic, very gross. This testimony and the supposed fiber from Jason's bathrobe that was found at the crime scene is pretty much just all that they had on Jason, which in my opinion is pretty much nothing. But because of this, however, they asked Jason if he wanted to testify against Damien Nichols to basically make his sentencing easier on him, but Jason denied doing this. The next person to testify was Detective Mike Allen, and he presented a map where the trailer park was located, basically in relation to the location of the knife that they had found in that lake behind the trailer park. He then states that the state basically had the belief that this was, in fact, the knife that killed the boys on May 5th, 1993. But during his cross-examination, he was asked if he was claiming that this was in fact the knife and he answered no sir I am not telling the jury that which yeah okay detective Ridge is then brought back to the stand and asked about the knife and he actually stated that it wasn't even law enforcement who told them to look in that lake but prosecutor John Fogelman so a little suspicious. once again this whole thing just a little suspicious. Very stupid. Very, ah. So this knife, a trace of blue wax that was found on one of the victim's shirt, and the green polyester fiber found on Mike Moore's Cub Scout cap is the only actual physical evidence that they have against Damien Acoles. The prosecution ended their side of things by allowing two more witnesses to come to the stand and testify. And these were two young girls that supposedly overheard Damien from like about like 25 yards away bragging about how he killed the kids and this was at a softball game. These two girls were Jody Medford and Christy Van Vickle, but this was never actually reported to law enforcement before this trial. So it's a little weird if you ask me, didn't really seem that important to you when you overheard him saying that at the softball game. But now it's important. Mm, I digress. So 
So now we're going to talk about what the defense did in this trial. So when the trial began, the defense began with a testimony from Pam Eccles, who is Damien Eccles' mother, and she testified that Damien was in fact home with her the entire evening of May 5th, 1993. And then they called Damien Eccles himself to the stand, and when he was brought up to the stand to testify, he was asked about his family history and his interests. Damien states that he liked to skateboard, he liked to watch movies, talk on the phone, and he really enjoyed reading. When asked about Wicca and his involvement with it, Damien basically explained to the court that it is a close involvement with nature and that he is not a Satanist and he would never and does not believe in human sacrifice at all. Damien had a dog skull in his bedroom, and when he was asked about why he had this dog skull, he simply explained that he thought it was cool, and the same question was basically asked about the evil tattoo that was across his left knuckles, and again, he basically just said, like, I thought it was cool, so I got it, which I totally understand that. I have some stick and poke tattoos that I basically just thought were cool and I was bored. So we did them. When he was asked about the way he dressed and how he like wore a lot of black, he talked about how he just was told that he looked good in black and that he was super self-conscious about the way that he dressed, which once again, I can completely understand, like to a very high degree. I stress about that shit every single day. So I get it. Damien also states that he had no idea who the boys even were and he had never even heard of them until after he saw them on the news. And the defense goes on to talk about how the West Memphis Police Department had both a video camera and a tape recorder. So they were a little confused as to why these readily available devices were never even used when they interviewed Damien multiple times. They also bring up the lost blood samples because what the fuck? How do you just lose blood samples? But I digress. John Mark Byers was also called up to testify in this trial and he was asked about the knife that he had given away shortly after the bodies had been found. John Mark testifies that the blood that was on the actual knife was in fact his and that it was from a cut, which the defense thought was kind of odd because John Mark had originally told authorities that he had no idea where this blood had come from. The defense then calls up Robert Hicks, who is a police training officer with some expertise in satanic crime, and he was called to the stand as the final witness for the defense. Hicks testifies about the sexual mutilation and how it was being tied to occultism, and Hicks said that he knew of no connection between the two, and he also stated that Dale Griffiths' claims about trappings of the occult were, quote, absolutely meaningless in considering any kind of violent crime. This was the end of the defense's side, and they rested their case. On March 17, 1994, all three sides give their closing arguments for the jury with prosecution heavily discussing occultism and Damien's defense discussing proving his guilt without a reasonable doubt and to remember that, and Jason's defense discussing how his client is just guilty by association. 
On March 18, 1994, Judge Burnett announced the verdicts for both Damien and Jason. They were both found guilty of capital murder in the deaths of all three of the young boys. The jurors then decided on life in prison without the possibility of parole for Jason, and Damien was to be put to death by lethal injection. Judge Burnett decided that Damien's execution date would be May 5th, and both of the defendants were sent on their way, with Jason going to Pine Bluff Penitentiary and Damien to the maximum security prison in Varner, Arkansas. Damien eventually, throughout his years in prison, met someone through a famous documentary that came out about the West Memphis Three, and this was called Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. Lori Davis had seen this film and began communicating with Damien. In December of 1999, the two of them got married in a Buddhist ceremony held at the maximum security prison. In 2003, Vicki Hutchinson told a reporter from the Arkansas police that everything she had said in her statement and testimony was a lie. She states that she felt compelled to cooperate with the police because she was afraid her son would be taken if she didn't. And in 2007, the DNA that was found at the crime scene was retested. And you'll never guess, it did not match Damien, Jason, or Jesse. And a hair that was like found in a knot used to tie up one of the boys was found to be not consistent with Terry Hobbs because there was like rumors that he could have been involved. Even though Judge Burnett had the physical DNA evidence proving their innocence, he still denied a new trial. So all of the defense attorneys took this decision and appealed it to the Arkansas Supreme Court. And on November 4th, 2010, the Arkansas Supreme Court announced their opinion that the trial court should reconsider the newly discovered DNA evidence. All three of the teens, Damien, Jason, and Jesse, had to agree to an Alford plea, which basically states that you're guilty, but you're also maintaining your innocence. And on August 19th, 2011, there is a hearing held, and Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly are all able to walk free. Since their wrongful conviction and release, Damian Eccles has written and released three books. Jason Baldwin moved to Austin, Texas, and actually created a nonprofit organization called Proclaim Justice, where he helps individuals who are wrongfully convicted, as he was. And Jesse Miss Kelly kind of remained in West Memphis and stayed under the radar, which I don't blame him. The real killer or killers have not been discovered in this case. And Stevie Branch, Mike Moore, and Chris Byers still have yet to receive the justice that they so desperately deserve. And that is all I have for you folks. This is the case of the West Memphis Three. So that case is wild, but I hope you enjoyed it. It was so infuriating to research that. Just seeing how obvious it is that they just were not the people that committed this crime. And just how 
tunnel vision those police officers were. It like really just pissed me off the whole time, but I am happy that they were released and did not have to spend another day in prison. It does suck how long they were in prison, but I am happy that they're able to continue to live out their lives, not locked up for a crime that they did not commit. So, yeah. But Stevie Branch and Mike Moore and Chris Byers obviously still deserve justice. So, they need to figure that out for them because they deserve it. But yeah, I hope you enjoyed a little two-parter. I'm sorry for making you wait. There was just seriously so much information in this case. So much happened. It's all very crazy, but it was very interesting and fun to research. So yeah, but I don't really think I have any other announcements for you guys. If you want to follow me on social media, that would be really cool. I've been trying to give y'all subtle hints that you probably should be following me by the very beginning of October, which is coming up pretty quick, okay? So get on that. Follow me. I'm going to tell you my social medias right about now. I have an email where you can email me cases, suggestions, whatever your heart desires. I want to hear about it. And it is the not so grateful dead pod at gmail.com. I also have a website, which is the not so grateful dead.podbean.com. I have an Instagram, the not so grateful dead underscore podcast. I have a TikTok, the not so grateful dead pod. And I have a Facebook, the not so grateful dead podcast with Grayson Decker. And yeah, I hope that I see you again on Sunday. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. You deserve it. And yeah, that's all. Okay, goodbye.